me at Jello, Jello. You had me at Jello. You had me at Jello. Oh, you had me at Jello. Hi, everybody. It's five o'clock on a Friday. Hopefully, all week you've been availing yourself of the many materials at youhadmeatchello.com or at cellocartman.com. And not a coincidence, my guest this week is none other than Dr. Stefan Cartman from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. How are you doing, Stefan? I'm fine, Benjamin. I'm so glad to be with you this afternoon. Oh, it's a delight to have you. So uh, traditionally, we start out just in case there are some people who aren't as familiar with you. Can you tell about your, your musical background, how you got to where you are today? Okay, well, a lot of practice. You know, the, how do you get to Carnegie Hall practice? <laughs> that's, the, that's the old joke. Um, you know, I, I had a very early start on the cello because I had music in my family. My, my father uh, is a violinist. He's still, he's still a living at the, at the ripe, ripe age of uh, 89, and he still remembers... Uh, back in the day when he went to Juilliard, where he bought every record in his 5,000 records collection that I have now in, in my uh, I have now in my house, and uh, I used to play chamber music with him early on. The what I was told about uh, what I was told about my uh, start on the cello was that my sister, my older sister, started with the violin. And she had lessons with my uh, father, and I guess those must have been somewhat difficult because my mom's description of that was that uh, they would go down and spend an hour or two together in, in the studio, and then uh, one or the other of them would come out crying, and the other one would come out with their hair standing on end. <laughs> oh, no. So, so, uh, so that being the family experience with the uh, the children studying with the the patriarchal figure, um, they de they decided that cello might be a better option. And indeed, I participated in that because when my dad had a string quartet with uh, this would have been with David Cowley, who is also a cellist from uh, from Wisconsin. Um, David Cowley and uh, Roland and Almeida Vemos. This was the Antioch String Quartet back in the day, and I can actually send you a picture of that ensemble from 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 back then um, apparently the cello when i was still crawling uh as a as a toddler when i was still crawling the cello was the instrument that i could reach and apparently i would put my head or my hand on the cello and the vibrations from it would just really make my face go blank as i was kind of trying to process all of that information so uh, I'm told that that's how I started, but of course I don't really <laughs> don't remember that specifically. And then, uh, yeah, then came all of the practicing, and I had, uh, of course, marvelous teachers all the way. And uh, in my formal training at the collegiate level, I studied with um, uh, Harvey Shapiro and Zara Nelsova, who were two teachers at the Juilliard School. Um, I studied also with Alan Harris, who was a product of the Starker's, uh, Starker studio at Indiana. Um, I had lessons with Anthony Cook, who uh, was a pupil of uh, Fournier, uh, not Fournier, Anthony Cook was a pupil of uh, Tortelier, excuse uh -huh. me. 
and um, and then uh, and then on the East Coast, Harvey Shapiro and Zara Nelsova, and eventually Bernard Greenhouse when I did my uh, my doctorate, and that was kind of the. That was kind of the East Coast connection. There was there was Harvey Shapiro, Zarna Zelsova, and Bernard Greenhouse, and they all kind of represented uh, different areas or different pedagogical lineages. I want to say, um, Harvey studied with uh, a cellist by the name of Willicky. Um, Willicky came to the United States at Brahms's urging. Willicky played all of all of uh, Brahms chamber music with Brahms. And then when he came over to the States, the, uh, you know, 19th and early, early 20th century composers and musicians that were famous that came over here, like uh, Richard Strauss or Camille Saint-Saëns, he performed with them. So he performed Strauss's Sonata with Strauss and, and Saint-Saëns conducted as he played, uh, played in the orchestra. So when I studied with Mr. Shapiro, I felt like I had, uh, I had just a one, one generation's away from a contact from those marvelous composers of the works that they teach at Juilliard, which are all those 19th century uh, chestnuts, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, similarly when I studied with Zara years later, but by the time I studied with Zara, I think I was more, well, I was certainly more accomplished. And uh, she really wanted me to be her assistant. I think to, uh, to take the cellist's that I, how should I say this? You know, Zara, Zara is gone. Uh, Zara is gone now. What, what she, she wanted to ch teach the cellist that really wanted to play badly enough to make sacrifices, you know, like not have a life and, and practice. And, you know, I was obviously that, but some of her students, the undergraduates in particular, um, she would just assume have somebody else teach them until they got to that point. <laughs> So uh, my experience with her was more as an assistant, although I did have lessons with her every week, and she was, wow, what a personality. I mean, she really was the, the grand dam of, of cello. I'll never forget the first experience I had uh, with her. At that point, I was, uh, I was living with my fiancé, um, who was a pianist. I had a kind of a run-down rust bucket uh, uh, of a car that I, that I was in, and uh, because I was Zara's teaching assistant, um, I would uh, pick her up and take her from the hotel to the music school. This is Rutgers <laughs> University where I was doing my doctorate. And, um, and she had oh, elaborate scarves that would flow behind her. And the, she still had the bouffant hairdo and still somehow in her 80s had blonde hair. I am not sure how exactly that occurred. Maybe that was just a freak of nature, but... Possibly there was some chemistry involved. In any case, um, in any case, I picked her up the first time at the music school to take her back to the hotel, and she, of course, you know, sat in the passenger seat, and and you know, my wife to be sat in the back seat. Anyway, Zara was having some trouble with her hip that week, and uh, and she uh, she leaned over to me and she looked at me with the biggest bluest eyes I think I had ever seen, and she said, "Oh, Stefan." The seatbelt, I can't manage. And she batted her eyes at me, and it was really, really something, you know. And when we got to the uh, when we got to the to the Hyatt, and uh, I was carrying her millions dollars Stradivari in a soft cello case. Oh, don't ask me why. That's just what she did, you know. Um, anyway, as I was about to go through the roundabout door, which is you know the terror of all cellists, of course. Um, and especially with a soft case and a Stradivari, I was a little self-conscious. 
And uh, she obviously had been to this place many times before. And so she walked over to the side of the, the roundabout door and she said, uh, oh, Stefan, why should we struggle? And she pressed this button and these two doors separated and made this sound and open. And she wafted into the lobby of the Sarasota Hyatt with her scarf trailing somewhat behind. <laughs> anyway, that was uh, some of my memories of uh, Zara Nelson. And I learned a lot from her. Actually, it was different things than what I studied with Harvey. As I, as I mentioned, uh, I was more uh, of an assistant at that point as a doctorate student there. And, um, and I used to come to my lessons. See, I was used to having lessons with Mr. Shapiro where I would actually touch the, the bow to the string and Harvey would say, no, and then he'd start telling me how stupid I was before I even played a note. He was, he was tough, but he was fun also. He had a brilliant sense of humor, a great wit, and he was a wonderful cellist also. Um, but anyway, my experience was working on the first measure of a piece you know, endlessly. And then, you know, I was just expected to take that, whatever I learned in that measure to the rest of the piece. <laughs> Zara, my very first lesson with her, I came in uh, with a piece that I knew from having played it with orchestra at times, times in the past. Um, I brought in the Elgar Cello Concerto and I, you know, played through the first movement expecting her to stop me at any moment, which she didn't. And uh, then I got to the end and I'm kind of waiting for her to tear me apart. And, and she says, oh, that's, uh, that's lovely what you do with the second, uh, with the second theme group. It's, it's nice that you make the contrast with the first. I, I, think, uh, I think a little slower on the scale, the second scale up in the, in the recapitulation. And I was getting ready to, you know, try to do these things that she was asking. And she said, do you have the second movement? And so I said, uh, I said, okay. So I, you know, played the second movement for her, and oh, you have a marvelous spiccato, she said. And then, and then she said, I like the coda to go a little bit faster, you know. And so I was getting ready to do that. And do you have the third movement? So, you know, I got through the whole piece in that one lesson. Wow. And then I thought, okay, this has got to be some kind of strange thing because I was just not used to this at all. I thought she was just doing a survey you know, to see what she needed to work on and, you know, uh, with me in the, in the future. And she said, and what will you be playing for me next week? So during my lessons that year, I went through, I think, Elgar, Lalo Sassan, Rococo Variations, Schumann, um, Dvorak. Uh, I think I did all but one of box suites, and the one was the E flat, um, and then uh, all of Beethoven sonatas, um, both Brahms sonatas, Rachmaninoff, uh, Chopin sonata, and St Richard Strauss sonata. I, I can't remember everything because it was a different whole piece every week. Wow. And it was such a shock to my system. I can tell you, because this was at the time that I had to be in the library hours a day to study for my comprehensives and uh, and all of that. So that was a completely different experience. I studied with uh, Bernie, who was really a marvelous musician and a marvelous chamber musician. And uh, I would say that Bernie was uh, well, first of all, he was a he was a dear fellow. I mean, uh, he was he was very good to me. And um, 
and he had a beautiful uh, Strad also that he used to encourage me to play sometimes in lessons. I had a fine instrument, but you know he wanted me to sometimes play on his Strad, and um, and he was always encouraging me to find more color in my playing. And I would say that was one of the one of the harbingers. Again, uh, in Bernie's case, I had really done the nuts and the bolts of becoming a, a competent cellist with with other teachers, and so I think that both Bernie and Zara thought that they could just let that aspect of my, of, you know, the technical aspect of my, of my preparation uh, be handled. Once in a while, I would get a suggestion here and there, but it was, it was really very, very seldom that they would offer technical suggestions. I was more musical from them. It is funny, isn't it, how, like what you mentioned with Zara, that she preferred working with them at a particular level. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there are some people whose teaching styles, they prefer working at a particular level rather than being able to kind of uh, feel like they can do all, all ages and all levels. And likewise, the ones that really clearly love to work on big picture musical things versus the ones who love to get into the nitty gritty uh, of how to, how to execute this or that better. You know, they all, many of them seem to have their, their preferences. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why it's important to study with more than one teacher during your lifetime. <laughs> right, right. Um, and let's see. And then what about uh, Anthony Cook? Yeah, Tony Cook was really, I, I would say he got me started on all of the things that I needed to, uh, to play well technically on the instrument. It's not, that, it's not that I didn't get technical advice. I had plenty of that from Mr. Shapiro, but... I mean, I think that Mr. Shapiro hit the high points of really advanced technique. And uh, Tony, who is still alive, um, he was my uh, high school, my high school uh, teacher. And uh, he made me do, I don't want to say against my will, but I fought it all the way, um, <laughs> scales. And he made me do etudes and things like that. Oh, boy, that just used to burn me. I, you know, growing up in a musical family and hearing music all the time, what I would do with my uh, with my early teachers, one of whom was David Cowley, who was the cellist in my dad's quartet, right. um, was uh, I didn't read music, I, but I had a really keen ear and I had a very good memory for melody. And so if I could get somebody, my teacher, in other words, to play something for me once, just once was all I needed, then I could look at the music page and... I didn't need really to see anything. I just had to pretend that I was reading the notes. And so I became really an expert in conning David <laughs> Cowley into, you know, I would play a couple of notes and then I would make a scratch or, you know, miss a shift or something like that. And then he would say, no, no, you can't do that. And then he would start playing it because it was really easy to con him. I, you know, I, I don't know whether David is still alive, but, you know, if he, if he sees this, he would probably be horrified if he, if he know, he probably knew, you know, in all fairness, he probably knew that's what I was doing. I mean, you know, you'd have to be, you'd have to be a little bit too focused on something, something else to, to not realize that your student actually didn't know how to read notes. <laughs> So, of course, the result that that's had in my teaching is I'm always sniffing for that when I have a talented kid that's got a good ear and they come in yeah. and uh, and they, they don't know how to find whether they have a whole step between two fingers or a half step because they're not aware of what pitch they're on. Mm -hmm. You know, that's uh, that's always kind of a kind of a fun moment for me because I remember what what a horrible guy I was in my lessons. <laughs> that is funny. 
Well, now, so this, I think, makes a good segue. I was going to save it for later, but would you tell about your uh, book, The Artist's Guide to the Cello Technique? Artist's Guide to Cello Technique. Yes, I would be happy to tell you about my book, An Artist's Guide to Cello. And uh, all of my students, of course, have it. And actually, I have it in PDF form, so it's available on my on my website. And now uh, I'm actually having uh, it's being translated into Cantonese and into uh, and into uh, uh, Mandarin, uh, so that it can be. Because I do a lot of teaching actually uh, overseas. I have some students that are uh, teachers in the China Conservatory and uh, in in Taiwan in the university there, and also. Uh, friends that have students um, that are they're, they're performers themselves, but they have a private studio and their students, you know, they, they, they speak traditional uh, Cantonese or they speak uh, Mandarin. And, and uh, up until now, you know, they would take the exercises from my book, but the prose that's in there that describes how to do various things uh, is, is not really available to them. And so just as a, for instance, let me see here, I'm going to, I'm going to go, let me let me see if I can go high tech on you for a second. <laughs> okay, so here is uh, some pages from my book, and I'm going to zoom in on this because I know that it's going to be too small. But for instance, this hexachords exercise, mm-hmm. um, I'll play a little bit of it for you. So. so on. Um, this, uh, this particular exercise is about three note combinations and getting from one spacing to another. And, um, you know, it starts in various places on the instrument. And I found that uh, in any of those places, whether it's in, an, in a scale passage or in a melody, that I'm having difficulty finding balance in my hand, depending on the spacing of the finger as I go to the new position or not. Um, that it's a very helpful exercise. So now coming back to uh, what I was saying about the pros uh, for the for my students, students, students in China, um, if I was to introduce just this, which is what they have gotten up until now, um, it doesn't really describe, you know, how yeah. to use your fingers and your arm, whereas there is some pros that describes the exercise itself so that you can understand what's the theory behind the combinations of the fingers and also uh, some limited, I would say, description of, uh, description of, how, the, uh, of, of how the exercises are used. So um, in this book, this is one of many exercises, including all of our favorites, the, uh, the Galamian scale system and such. And, and so accompanying the book uh, over the years, I have been putting together some videos that are available. Oh, the book so that you can see it a little bit better. Um, this is what it looks like. I kind of held it up before to the camera, but that's, uh, that's and that's the scroll of my cello. You'll recognize it, you know, right here it is, <laughs> you know. Um, in any case, the, uh, the, the book itself uh, has the scales, the Glamian scales with some interesting fingerings because I know that, uh, Quite often, people will do the all of the scales um, with a pattern fingering that they can use 
kind of the same fingering on every scale. You, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, yeah, in mine, you know... see already that I'm not using kind of the, the standard repetitive pattern fingering so that all of the scales feel the same. And I guess my specific thinking behind that is that I'm actually using the scales to exercise different spacings and shifting combinations, you know, whereas, whereas the hexachord exercise obviously goes over the same shifts and then moves the whole thing up a half step and does it there. Uh, that's an exercise that's specifically designed to go at a, a set of shifts and, a, and an order of notes, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say that most frequently in uh, when I have a scale passage in, for instance, Rococo variations or something like that, I'll wind up coming up with a fingering that suits the rhythm and the shape of the passage. Right. So, for instance, if you get to... You know, this kind of thing. Or Yeah, okay, so I'm putting the wrong key. But anyway, you understand, shifting because of the scale passage's rhythm, I probably wouldn't use that you know, uh, if I was using a pattern, a, a, a pattern fingering for all of my scales, or I would use this and I would have to be kind of relearning the scale in a way. You uh -huh. see what I mean? Yeah. So I intentionally chose some interesting fingerings in that scale, including, okay, going back to, I was speaking about Harvey Shapiro uh, a little while ago. I'll never forget, I was coming in, I was playing some Beethoven A major sonata for him, right? Uh, we get to the passage. <laughs> Definitely not a standard fingering, right? Right. And so I, you know, I had the temerity to ask Harvey a question. Usually when I ask him a question, I get blasted, you know, for, I guess, just being too stupid to see the most obvious answer. But, um, you know, when it comes to that scale, I would say 90, 95% of the people would. And, you know, when you think about it, Okay, the scale is kind of awkward because you're having to shift across each string. And it's it's a legato, it's a legato uh, passage. Yeah. So unless you've got a Lynn Harrell hand where you can reach unless you've got a hand where you can just reach that far, then you wind up doing things with the bow and the left hand to kind of fake the legato across the strings. And so Harvey said, well, this scale, this fingering is much easier. Of course, it's only easier if you're so confident with your thumb in any position or using your thumb with the fourth finger that, uh, that you're comfortable playing that passage in tune and doing that. 
And then I guess it is easier because the actual string crossing from You can vibrate your thumb to boot. Well, you can get a vibrato and you can get a nice, easy transfer from one finger to another. But yes, it does take a little extra work. Yeah. So I guess my scale fingerings are a little unorthodox in that they exercise some of these things. Interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, uh, I, I find I use thumb an awful lot more in certain types of passages when, in mm -hmm. quartet playing because you know, the violins and violas being able to comfortably reach a fourth, there are times where you don't want to be the one person who has an audible shift in that passage where the others played it, you know. Yeah, isn't that something how they just get all of the, they can play, they can play two octaves without shifting in any key. You know, it's really rotten. <laughs> well, and the other thing I like about the, the hexachord exercise, I mean, when I think about the the exercises of different finger patterns and different positions in the foyard but there's again there's no text with them and they're not in always in a logical order so you can almost kind of have to pick and choose like you would in sevchik or something and go okay let's go from this one to this one to this one that have the principle and then you know the teacher adds the prose but um i like i like your there are a number of them where just a little bit of prose goes a long way to explain the why. Right. See, in Sevchik's case, what he would do is something similar to, to what I did, what I tried to do with my uh, book by, by pointing examples to the repertoire. So he did several, I want to say, practice guides for various concertos, the most famous, you know, being Brahms Concerto and Beethoven and, and like nice. that. And he showed how his exercises could be used in those cases. Yeah. To uh, to do it. I mean, it's all well and good to have an exercise like uh, like a vibrato exercise like this, right? Where you're doing uh, here. I'll show you how. I'll show you how this one sounds. Um, let's see here. I gotta get a metronome on for this. Sorry. Pardon me for a moment, Benjamin. I'll get I'll get my sixty on here. <laughs> okay. Got my sixty on here. You know, funny funny story. So a lot of my exercises. Uh, tend to wind up at the metronome marking of 60. And it's a it's kind of a coincidence. I, I kept on dropping and breaking my metronomes, perhaps on purpose, I don't know. But I always had a watch, and the watch had a second hand. It would move exactly at 60. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's like uh, telling, your, telling your kids that uh, you walked to school, and it was always freezing all year, and it was uphill both ways, and the wind was always blowing. <laughs> Well, anyway, back to back to my exercise. You know, this is a this is a technical exercise. I'll put it with the metronome. I don't know if you can hear the metronome, but anyway, uh, you can one can do this on any string. exercise like that and it's got a certain level of training towards your facility and achieving various speeds of vibrato but of course none of this sinks in including the hexachords exercise unless it's applied in real life so if you want to do uh 
practice of you know, using your vibrato in various passages in this way. Uh, the vibrato exercise is very useful. So what I did in the book to try and bind together some of the technical information that's in there with, uh, with actual real life using these things in, in the passages is I provided a, a, a chapter in there on a piece that's typically assigned to you know, high school and middle school students, the hide and see major. And I just took a page out of that and went after, let me see, I'll show, let me see if I can find, uh, okay. All right, so here we go. Sorry, I'm hitting the wrong button. Uh, some examples for repertoire-based use, right? So mm -hmm. these are examples from a famous passage uh, in the in the first movement, which involves some intonation in the upper register, yeah, and uh, some some places that students typically have difficulty with spacing, right? So uh, you know, there's some explanation, and uh, here you see an exercise that is actually from the book. So. I'll play a little bit of this for you. So you know, and one can do that uh, backwards. Uh, now, what that's all about is finding the spacings of the fingers in thumb position, right? So I have found over the years that I, I come across many times students are not even sure what the spacing is in a passage as they go from a scale from the D string to the A string, for instance, right? And so they don't know what differences the spaces are as they go from one string to another, and they don't really have an intelligent way of practicing it. So I developed an exercise in my book. Again, this is just raw technical information that would go over all of those spaces. Uh, instead of playing all of the sequences of notes that I just did, the order of them, I'm just going to go up and down just to show the yep. spacings first, okay? So that sounds like this. Etc., etc. So one can do those spacings from all half steps to all whole steps from, from one to another and work on just the spacing. Or one can extract from that exercise just the spacing that we needed in the case of the high of the high and do separate, several different orders of notes from that from that. And then if uh, if you have a passage that goes from the D string uh, Let's say it was that particular group of notes. Well, you can practice. You see what I mean? Yes. So it's a good way of, I want to call it foyardizing and uh, uh, the intonation and spacing in a particular passage with a particular focus. You see what I mean? Yeah, or, or bornoffizing. I mean, because it's, the, the violin world has a lot more uh, materials that are from the standpoint of... They're spoiled. They're pattern. very spoiled, the violinists, aren't they? They've got all of that great material. Not that we don't have some, but it's just not as deep and as, and as, and as comprehensive as what they have on the violin. Yeah, I, I love referring to a lot of the, 
the violin text. So, I mean, a lot of Simon Fisher stuff, even though it, it's not in bass clef, you just have to set it in front of somebody and, and they see the pattern, they get the idea and can start mm -hmm. transposing it by, by ear themselves. But it's, it's great because it, you took those and you, uh, you well, adapted them to course, the needs of the Well, you know, that child. exercise, I, of course, stole from a violinist. Tibor Varga did this as part of his warm-up. And here's how I found it, because, you know, when I was a student, uh, we did, weren't able to just blithely look on the Internet and find something. Uh, there were these books by Samuel Applebaum called The Way They Play. And sometimes, sometimes Sammy Applebaum would uh, Xerox a page from violinist X's music, in this case, Tibor Varga, who he was a famous violinist who I think Alban Baird wrote the concerto for because it was a fairly impossible concerto to play. Uh, Tibor Varga had this one page of violin technique that he would practice every day. And in there is this very same exercise. But of course, violinists can do half steps and whole steps between right. every finger. We just don't have that option. And so I adapted it for thumb position because it was particularly useful as a four finger exercise. Yeah, excellent, outstanding. Now, anyway, so that's in the book also. <laughs> great. Now, you've, you've mentioned Beethoven a couple of times. You have uh, your own Beethoven edition? I have my own Beethoven edition. I'm sorry, I didn't know that you were going to ask for that, but I, I didn't know I was going to either. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> not only, not only do I have a, uh, not only do I have a Beethoven edition. I don't see one. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> You're going to just think I'm such a nerd. No, I'm the recordings. Things around. Okay, so I did this project at UWM some years ago, and it. This is. Uh, Actually, maybe I could give you a better look at it. Here, here's technology. Okay, so uh, let's see if I can get it in the right spot. Yeah, so <laughs> this is this is my uh, version of the Beethoven uh, of the Beethoven cello sonatas, and you know I made it as a performance edition because I got tired of trying to find some sort of a solution for the. Uh, for the, the C major sonata, the Opus 102, where there's literally no place to turn the page from the beginning of the Adagio uh, introduction to the last movement through the through the whole last movement. And you know, similarly in the uh, in the uh, D major sonata, Opus 102, number two, you know, there is only one place to turn the page between uh, in the slow movement, and then after that, you've got a fugue where you basically play from the beginning to the end. Yes. So I did my own nice version of a cello part for that, and I thought, you know, why shouldn't I share that with my, with my uh, cello students? Um, and the edition itself is matched by a recording that I did. Okay, here we go again. Technology. You know, incidentally, I'm introducing to you my thumb cam. I use this particular camera when I'm trying to demonstrate for students. Oh, sure. To get their thumb up. Nice. Etc. You know, so that's that. There. Oh, and here's my other camera where I can talk about uh, spacing and, and uh, angles of the bow when I need to use them to get down. Yeah. I need to use an angle to get down there. And also you can see the left hand a little bit better from that side. Yes. In any case, um, <laughs> you can see I did a deep dive into technology. I had somebody come down here the other day and they said, oh, my God, it seems like every place I look, there is another device. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so anyway, yeah, we did this project and my students all did uh, movements of the Beethoven sonatas and we, we performed all of them in, and also the uh, variations. Also the yeah, variations. So this was this was a bunch of years ago. I'm impressed that you that you knew anything about that. I, I've run across it from time to time. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm trying to think. I'll let you know if I think of where it is that I that I come across. Well, no, I'm glad that you don't know where because that's that shows that some some of it's just kind of getting out there into right. the right. diaspora <laughs> somehow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I, I, another question that I I always ask all the interviewees, but in yeah. some ways has been answered quite a bit. It's about motivation and inspiration because. There's a great deal of motivation and inspiration from listening to a professional cellist's thoughts on whether it's technique or repertoire or their own teaching, et cetera, et cetera. But are there, I want to give you the opportunity, if there's some specific favorites that you have, either in terms of things, if you're having an off day, or just sometimes that we were tired because we didn't sleep well or something, the things that inspire you the most, or when you feel that a particular student is, it could use yeah. some sort of a boost. Yeah, I know exactly what you're getting at. You know, it's it's funny because my son is now a violinist and, you know, we had to pester him to uh, practice when he was younger because there were all kinds of other things that he was interested in. And, uh, um, you know, at a certain age with young students, uh, it's just establishing the habit of, of practice. I think that some students respond to uh, they respond only to fear, fear of embarrassing themselves in front of their colleagues, perhaps when they play for them, or fear of playing in front of a teacher who would be displeased with them, uh, or just a teacher, I guess, giving them a bad grade. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I, it seems to me that that is the worst possible way of in, inspiring somebody to practice. But with some people, it seems that there is just no other way. I mean, I, I've, I've had friends that I grew up with that were very talented and could get away with very little practice. And most people wouldn't know the difference. You know, I would know because I would know I would have heard them play something that they prepared really well for one day. And then I would hear them play something that wasn't as good. And, um, you know, this, the the students of my father that practiced out of out of fear of their parents and of my father uh, invariably wound up not practicing when there wasn't some sort of whip behind them. And what I mean by the whip is it can be an audition that you're preparing for. And without the regular practice, the daily practice that I, I actually kind of enjoy. To me, it's problem solving and it's interesting and I feel like I'm playing, playing a game of chess with myself, you know? Um, I mean, I know all of my moves and it's still at the same time, I'll once in a while surprise myself, you know, and either find something new or, or whatever. But, you know, those students, they always, it's like their, their progress, in my opinion, seems to cap at a, at a certain point, somewhat lower than what I feel that they could achieve. Of course, it's not my business to say, you know, and I, I also think that sometimes people that, uh, come to the instrument with, uh, a lot of natural skills, let's say facility or, uh, you know, a fine ear for intonation or a fine ear for uh, beautiful tone colors and things like that. You know, 
sometimes because those students don't have to work at that thing that other people may have to work at, they, they kind of let some of, the, some of the things that they ought to be studying go. As far as the inspiration that I find or my students find, man, if you can't find inspiration from this incredible music, I mean, I was, I have to, okay, so I have to play Dvorak Cello Concerto in, uh, in April, April uh -huh. 9th. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't played it in a bunch of years and I'm down here in my, in my, in my cave studio. My, my wife got me a sign for the, uh, for the wall that says the man cave, you know, because <laughs> I come down here and I do my teaching till all hours of the morning. If I'm working it with somebody in, uh, in Beijing, I wind up teaching at two in the morning or something. Oh, like wow. That. Um, you know, I come down here and I start practicing and, you know, the silence that I'm filling with this incredible piece of music by Dvorak and, and thinking about the story of, you know, of his inspiration uh, for the piece, you know, a love, a love lost and yearning for his yearning for his his uh, his native land after he had been in the United States for a, for a time with all the hustle and bustle of New York City and all of the. Uh, I guess back in the country kind of feeling of, of uh, Spillville, Iowa. You know, it's, some of it is just so heart-wrenching. It'll leave me, it'll leave me in tears. It, it, I'll be down here by myself crying, you know, just because it's so beautiful. And I'll tell you when I knew that my son was going to be a great violinist. I came upstairs one day and he was... He was lying on our bed crying and had been, I think, for some time. It was young. He was really young. I don't even know if he remembers this. But, you know, I came and I said, what's wrong? You know, and I was going to I was all ready to console him. And he just he said, the the Bach Chacon is so beautiful. You know, and that moment in my <laughs> life was just really, really special because it was that moment that I knew this guy's going to be okay. I, maybe I forced him to practice. Maybe he sometimes, you know, maybe he didn't like it. I always wanted to try not to chase him away, you know? Yeah. But when it came down to it, that's the thing that came out, you know? That's great. There's a Yiddish word for that, nachas. It's, it's pride in, uh, in some sort of special feeling or achievement that your, that your uh, son or daughter has hmm. has uh, has shown to you, you know. Nakis, excellent. All right. So, in addition to the Dvorak, other performances or projects coming up? Well, I mean, you know, I play regularly with the Festival City Symphony. That's really a terrific organization in town here in Milwaukee. Um, I think it's mostly made up of music educators and and a few freelance musicians in the area. And so these are kind of my colleagues that are in the trenches in the public schools, teaching orchestras and things like that. And a lot of them are private teachers. It's not the Milwaukee Symphony, but we play in the same uh, hall. Hmm. And uh, and Milwaukee Symphony just recently renovated a, a, a space downtown, an old Art Deco theater, and it's really, really beautiful. So I'm looking forward to that. And um, that group uh, offers, because of the gen generous uh, patronage of Franklin Essenberg, they offer these concerts free to the public. Anybody that wants to go to a concert on a, on a Festival City concert day can go in here. For instance, on April 9th, it'll be the Dvorak Cello Concerto, the Enigma Variations. I, uh, you know, I regularly do recitals here. I, 
I, you know, Jeannie and I did a recital with uh, Beethoven A major, and uh, I did a Bach D minor suite, and what else did we play? Shostakovich Sonata? I can't, I can't remember, but that was, uh, that was back in December. You know, every year I do a recital, and I trot it around to this and that location. I, I do chamber music in the summers for the past, I think, 20 years or so. I've been going to Vermont uh, at the Green Mountain Chamber Music Festival, um, but this summer, for the first time, I'm going to stay and give concerts with a quartet, and I'm going to do chamber music coaching in town for just a few students. I want to just focus. I don't want to be involved in a big organization. I would just like to focus on some uh, some few, a couple, three quartets, and just give them attention every day, coach with them the way we used to rehearse, you know, when, when my quartet was uh, was doing concerts regularly, you know. And I'm gonna see if that I'm gonna see if that feels better to me, and if if that's just if if that's just not something that I find that I want to do, then I guess I'll go back and work for the festivals again. You know, it's just I'm I'm getting to the age where I'm kind of trying starting to experiment with things a little bit and see kind of throw something at the wall and see what sticks. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, Dr. Carpenter, thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure You're talking. You're welcome. It's my pleasure, actually, Benjamin. You know, you know, you're a wonderful force in Wisconsin, and and I I feel like uh, I feel like characters like you that have a have a real honest, honest to God interest in the craft of playing the cello are are are, are quite rare. There's a lot of people that go and play and 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 show what they're doing, and you know, and then there's some other people that that uh, teach because it's uh, it's a it's a way for them to uh, have an artistic outlet beyond their own selfish urges. And there's, there's just a very few people that do both. And you're certainly one of them. And I want to thank you. It was a real honor for you, uh, honor for me to have, uh, to have been asked to do this with you. And also, I always enjoy spending time with you. Terrific, terrific. It's very mutual. And I'm, I'm excited to hear, uh, the, always am, the, the thoughts of the students watching. And um, it, it, feedback from viewers is always fun and welcome, too. So, and, and likewise, love to hear that when people stumble across some new resources like your book and your recordings and your website, cellocartman.com. So in the meantime, that will surely fuel them through the weekend and more. And then I'll see everybody else next Friday at five and happy practicing between. <laughs>